0: Well, we are in Romans chapter 2, and again, as Alan said last week, this is, not, this is not the type of stuff that's going to gain you friends, people who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ and love the Bible, these types of messages. But in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, uh, many times when preachers like Alan and I come to passages like, like Romans chapters 1 to 3, really, it's met with opposition from people criticizing the Bible for being an archaic book. These types of views about sin and judgment, it's archaic. And they say things like, it's the 21st century. Can't you talk about something more relevant to our day and time? Because in the 21st century, we've seen so many technological advances, socio-economical advances scientific advances, all of that. We've seen all of these things. So it's a 21st century. Surely we've moved past all of this stuff. It's just as relevant today as it was in the first century. The biggest problem of the world is still the same as it has always been. It is a sin problem. It is the problem of mankind living in rebellion against its creator. But mankind doesn't accept God's assessment of our guiltiness. You know, we, we, we admit things like murder and rape are, are, are very, very serious, right? They're wrong. And we're very quick to, to, to admit that. But murder and rape, let's face it, aren't part of most people's everyday lives. Some people, they do experience things like that, and it's horrible, and we condemn it and want to offer support to people like that. But murder and rape aren't part of the everyday lives of most people. Most people live more morally upstanding lives than that. This morning, I'm going to give you an outline, right? And we're going to jump right into this after I give you my outline. It's Very simple. Three things. Number one, the proverbial man. And I'll explain what that word proverbial means if you're not familiar with that word. The proverbial man in verses one to four. The penalty in verses five to six. And then the potential. In verses seven and ten. But I want to start with the former, the proverbial man. So what do we mean by the proverbial man? Allow me the liberty to, of, of sharing an illustration about American politics for a moment, okay? Now let me just say, um, this is by no means a statement of my personal political preference in the USA. But let me just say this. It, during his 2008 presidential campaign, Senator Barack Obama... Um, he made a stop in the state of Ohio that was videotaped, okay? So in all of his campaign going around trying to garner support from people, they stopped it off in, in Ohio. And um, during an impromptu question and answer session afterwards, a man named Joe Wurzelbacker stepped up. He voiced his concerns about Mr. Obama's tax policy as it would neg- negatively affect his plans to open his own local plumbing business. And this clip went viral, especially in the USA. So many local business owners and working class individuals identified with his statements and his concern. And as a result, Mr. Obama's opponent, John McCain, also a senator running for president, spoke of this man, often who became affectionately known as Joe the Plumber or Plumber Joe. Mr. McCain would make reference to him so often in order to appeal directly to to a whole group of voters. So he tried to speak into their lives by addressing Joe the plumber. Now, in a similar way, Paul uses the statement, Oh, man twice in verse 1 and verse number 3 of our passage. He is using this non-existent man who is basically just a proverb. That's why we say the proverbial man. He's like a proverb. He's like a metaphor to speak to all Jews. All man. Who's he speaking to? Not a real man, but all Jews. Speaking to the the heart of the Jewish people. Now in verses 1 to 4, by speaking to this proverbial man, Paul is attempting to speak to the heart of those unbelieving Jews who believe themselves to be good, moral people. Now, just to jog our memories, let's recap just a little bit to see what we've seen so far, okay? Um, from, From verse 18 of chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 20, God is using Paul to explain to us how and why the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against sin. In chapter 1, Paul begins by addressing mankind as a whole, then moves on to addressing paganism, you know, like idolatry, and as Alan looked at last week, abusing the gift of the human anatomy for things that God didn't intend. And then there's the list of sins at the end of chapter 1. And the entire time, the point of Paul's discourse has been to show that despite God's goodness in creating human beings with a homing beacon, beacon to him, in spite of God even making his divine nature and attributes known to us by planting that knowledge in us, he uses this phrase in chapter 1, verse 20. They are without excuse. Without excuse. And now I want you to notice the first phrase of chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, amen. Again, Paul is speaking to the average Jew here. This is the Jewish man who reads chapter 1, verse 32. uh, Those who practice such things are deserving of death and approve of those who practice in them. And he reads that and he says, that's not me. In fact, I think that those people in chapter 1 are horrible for being like that. And Paul's speaking to the person that believes that way. And this is the Jewish woman, let's say. Let's replace old man with old woman. This is the Jewish woman who would ignore her small sins in order to uh, highlight someone else's big sins. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18, who said, I thank God that I'm not like that tax collector." So let's look at verses one and two. Let's just read the whole verses. It says, therefore, you are inexcusable. O man, whoever you are, who judge for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Paul challenges this person. You might not applaud or approve, but your ability to judge others doesn't make you righteous. You will be judged for what you do, not by what you know to be right and wrong judged in others. You are personally accountable for your actions and you will be judged for your actions, not the actions of others. Verse number three. And do you think this, O man or O woman, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God just because you highlight their sin to the neglect of yours? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The fact that you know these things are wrong means, according to verse 1, you have no excuse. And according to verse 3, you have no escape. No excuse. No escape. In the words of Uncle Ben Parker in Spider-Man, With great power comes great responsibility. In the greater words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom much is given, much will be required. Forgive me for the shameless Spider-Man reference there. The average Jew thought that because they knew enough to identify God's moral standards, that it somehow gave them credit and gave them a pass to judge others. But their understanding of God's moral standards meant that they were in greater danger of judgment. They were without excuse twice now. Without excuse because they should know of the divine nature and judgment of God through his wrath revealed in chapter 1. And without excuse now in chapter 2 because they know God's law and they ignore it nonetheless. There is a tendency to think that because life is okay right now that God and I are cool. The fact that you are not currently experiencing God's judgment, listen to me, does not mean that you and God are on good terms. There can be a misconception about that. And we ask ourselves often, why doesn't God exact judgment at this moment on this sin or that person or that sinner? Well, let's flip that for a moment. Why does God not exact judgment on you when you sin? There was a theologian of the past named Jonathan Edwards, who was very instrumental in the Great Awakening in North America. And um, he preached a sermon one time called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And a lot of times people hear that title and they think, oh, he was like screaming at people. He read it in a monotone voice. And what followed was the Great Awakening. And it was this idea and this concept that without the gospel, without Christ, we are all in the hands of of God suspended above hellfire itself. And at any moment, a holy, righteous, just God could do this. And it's only his mercies that keeps him from doing that. Every single one of us are in that situation. This is really important. Paul is saying that the purpose of chapter one was not to lead the reader to judgmentalism. The purpose of chapter 1 was to lead the reader to repentance. Not to lead them to judge others, but to learn to lead them to repent. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says that the entire point of God being long-suffering and patient in exacting judgment on sinners is so that they will repent. God is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And when we repent, we turn from our sin and our perceived self-righteousness, and we turn to God, it's what the word repent means, to turn to God and his provision of salvation on the cross. But things change, don't they? The average Jew knew these things about themselves and they refused to repent. So again, according to verse number one, they were without excuse. As verse 11 says, just because they're a Jew, didn't change anything. There was no partiality with God. Let's go to the second point. The penalty. We've seen this proverbial man. God is speaking to a whole group of people through this one individual old man. But let's look at the penalty in verses five and six. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of god who will render to each one according to his or her deeds verse 5 is the second mention of god's wrath in romans it's alluded to in romans chapter 1 chapter 1 dealt with the wrath of God being being given over. Those who refuse to retain God in their knowledge being given over to the wrath of God. Verse 5 is dealing with the future wrath. Verse 5 of chapter 2 here is dealing with the future wrath of those who remain given over, unrepentant. We said earlier that the average Jew thought that because they knew enough to identify God's moral standards that it somehow changed Things and gave them credit. Remember that? And it did give them credit. Shocking statement, isn't it? But not the type of credit that they thought. What type of credit did their knowledge of God's moral standards give them? Wrath. Wrath more and more of it. It was like depositing money into a bank account. Over time, you deposit more and more until eventually it becomes a large amount. And by knowing but refusing to repent, these Jews were accumulating a great sum of wrath. They were amassing a great hoard of wrath that God would justly deal out upon them on Judgment Day. Here's what he's saying. More and more time, ignoring God's mercies. Can we go to the next slide there, Jacob? More and more time ignoring God's mercy equals more time sinning equals more wrath being stored up against you. That's what he's communicating. The longer that you go without repenting, the more you're stirring up and accumulating more and more of God's wrath. Because remember, we're all sinners in the hands of an angry God. Verse number eight, that those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also to the Greek. Really, in a lot of ways, Paul bursts their bubbles here. This this won't be on the screen, but but notice rapid fire a a few things that God says to them. Uh, Chapter two, verse six, Basically, they are accountable for their deeds, not being favorites. Chapter 2, verse 7, it it is the ability to do good and the refusal to do so that God sees. Verse verse 8, there's wrath for those who do not obey. Verse 9, everyone does evil no matter who. Jews were not exempt. And then chapter 2 and verse number 11, there are no favorites with God. God is without partiality and judgment. Paul is trying to bring the proverbial Jewish man who read chapter one and said, That's not me, to acknowledge his own sin and to repent. And that brings us to number three. This is, this is a, a a gloomy sermon, isn't it? Number three, the potential. Is Paul saying in verses 7, and 10, that good works get us into eternal life. Let's, let's read it again. Uh, verse number 7. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Is Paul saying that good works get us into eternal life? Verse number 10. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Is Paul saying in verses 7 and 10 that good works get us into eternal life? Hypothetically, yes. But practically, no. If such a sinless person existed in verses 7 and 10, then God would grant them eternal life based on their own works. no such person exists. Paul is going to say this very definitively in Romans chapter 3 when he says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Paul is arguing that God will judge us based on our deeds, not our ethnicity or our ability to judge others or knowledge of something being sinful. Paul in this section is trying to bring everyone to the point of knowing this. Listen to me. He's trying to bring everyone to the point of knowing that they need Jesus. There's one thing that I want, to take, want you to take away from this sermon. It's three words. I want you to say them with me after I say them. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. That's what I want you to take away from this sermon this morning. More than anything else, he's trying to bring everyone to the point of knowing that truth. I'll read to you a few verses in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 15. For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Remember, we started by talking about our weaknesses, didn't we? But was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without without sin. Christ accomplished what we could not. He lived the life we should have lived. He never sinned not one single time. He was the perfect man, the perfect substitute in life. Then Hebrews chapter nine. Remember, Hebrews was written to Jews, just like the one that Paul is writing to there. Hebrews 9, verses 27 to 28, it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, that's a reality. We will all stand before God in judgment. But notice what it goes on to say. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart sin for salvation Christ provided for us what we could never provide for ourselves he provided for us what we could never provide for ourselves he became our substitute both in life as the perfect person and in death as the perfect sacrifice as the perfect substitute for me he died on the cross in our place satisfying the wrath of God on our behalf so that wrath that hangs over us, that wrath that's being stored up unto the day of judgment, Christ took our wrath and judgment upon the cross. When I was creating that picture a moment ago of wrath being stored up, can I ask you a question? Did you get an image of something very large? The accumulation of wrath towards you? I did. I'll I tell you what I was thinking of. It was an old cartoon, Ducktails. Where Uncle Scrooge would always dive into that treasure trove of coins stacked up. Some of you won't get it. It's a generational thing, but um, but I, I think of a large treasure trove of wrath that I have amassed over the years. Just this mountain of wrath. Think about this for a moment. Christ had all of that placed upon him. Not just mine, yours, and yours. And yours. Can you see the enormity of what Christ endured upon the cross? The weight of sin and wrath and judgment that Jesus experienced for us. He did it in love. He suffered the judgment of God on our behalf once for all. Once for all. So we come back to Romans here, and there's no such person as the person described in verses 7 and 10 who consistently does what is good without failure. None but Christ. And that's why we all need chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I invite you to go back to 16 and 17 of chapter 1. It's where we started, wasn't it? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God. Salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first. And also for the Greek. Notice this. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The wrath of God. The righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul began this epistle by declaring that the righteousness of God had been revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in the second half of chapter 1 and chapters three, 2 and 3, God is showing us why we need chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Why do we need the righteousness of God to be revealed to us in the gospel and the personal work of Jesus Christ? Because the end of chapter one and chapters two and three speak of the wrath of God being revealed on all sin. So here's the question. What's this for in 2024? I want to give you several things. Number one, this is a caution. This passage is a caution to those who are religious but lost. Now, don't let your pride, here's the caution, don't let your pride and your refusal to repent drag you to hell. Don't let it eternally separate you from God. You may have attended church for much of your life. You may have heard the gospel. You may have even taken communion at times. But if you haven't repented and trusted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you are storing up more and more wrath for the day of judgment. And this is God's warning to you to stop putting it off. This is just as much for the 21st century as it was for the first century. Turn to Christ today, no matter how religious you are. You're still lost and you still need Jesus. Second thing is this. What Christ has done is enough. Believer, rest in that truth. What Christ has done is enough. A relationship with your creator would not be possible without the gospel. Peace with God would not be possible. Eternal life would be a pipe dream were it not for the gospel. But what Jesus accomplished on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, it's enough. Child of God, rest in this. Through Christ, both are not just possible. Peace, relationship with the creator, but they are a reality for born again believers. So let your heart rest in that. And I'm automatically thinking of when I went to israel a few years back and um the dead sea is one of the most fascinating and weird things i've ever experienced in my life um we went to the dead sea and we 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 went just to the to the edge of it near where you know the big tourist spot is but they always they always talk about the sodium and the the salt in the dead sea and and there's nothing living in the dead sea which is why they call it the dead sea because there's too much sodium to support any life forms and um but the plus to that As we humans go there and we're like, this is incredible. Because what you do is you wade into the water and you get shoulder deep and you just fall back. And you float on top of the water. You couldn't sink if you wanted to. You just float on top of the water. And you know what I I thought when I was there? I thought, this is so peaceful. That Mediterranean sun beaming, beaming down on me and just, just lying there just taking it all in basking in the sun water underneath me the sun above me fully supported rest in Christ that way what he has done what he has accomplished for you is enough to fully support you it's enough for you to bask in it's enough to alleviate your fears of death and dying your fears of judgment and hell and rebuke, it's enough to alleviate all of that. Part of resting in this truth, listen to me, is worshiping and giving God all the glory. Let this reality stir up in you praise that God so richly deserves and just let go and rest in all that Jesus is and all that he's done for you. There's a third and final thing that I want to have you take away. There's power for today. Through the gospel of Jesus, there is power for today. If the gospel of Christ was powerful enough to forgive my sins, how dare me doubt its power for my needs today. Christ is powerful enough to overcome my fears to overcome my temptations, to overcome my insecurities, to overcome my weaknesses. There is power for you today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believer, you have power. You have strength, but not in and of yourself. His grace, His strength is made perfect in weakness i am weak but you are strong may god bless these thoughts to let's pray lord thank you so much for these truths thank you for the gospel lord there is no good news without bad news the good news without the bad news is no news but thank you so much for that good news and it is so good God, I'm sorry for at times not, not really appreciating how powerful the gospel is in my life. Not really taking hold of it, God. You you want me to experience your fullness. You want me to experience an intimate walk in relationship with you. God afresh, I want to turn to you now. Trust you more than ever bask in you and rest in you more than ever thank you that this is true lord if there's anyone here this morning that has not turned to you and accepted this free gift of salvation god i pray that today would be that day please work in their hearts whatever's holding them back from trusting you break those chains god those of us who know you god Thank you. Thank you so much. Help these truths to impact our lives as much as it's impact our service here this morning. Please change the way we walk and talk and think and speak. Because of this reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.